Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. This is the Gamers with Glasses show, and I'm Christian Haynes, one of the editors of the website GamersWithGlasses.com. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Don Everhart. Hello. Nate Schmidt. Hi there. And first-time guest, longtime website contributor, Blake Reno. Hello. It's relatively not been a long time, but I've been running for the whole, whole life of the website, so I guess yeah. it's a long time. Relatively speaking. I mean, we're going to yeah. get into timelines uh, at some point, right. so let's keep it simple for now. Uh, so we're going to be starting out like we usually do by discussing the games we're currently playing, but then the rest of this episode is dedicated to one of the most beloved franchises in video game history, The Legend of Zelda. What's made the series so appealing to gamers for more than 30 years? What's the deal with its convoluted timelines? Who's who in Hyrule? And what's a young hero to do with a sword, a boomerang, and a bomb? One thing I can promise you is that we won't decide which Zelda is the best. Although I'm sure we'll have snarky comments about which might be the worst. Uh, so, why don't we get started with games we're playing? And, Don, why don't you start us off with, you know, the newest, latest Super Yeah, Metroid. I'm really excited to hear about this fun <laughs> indie title that Don has picked up. I, I thought... For the Legend of Zelda podcast that I would go with a really deep cut, a game that no one ever continuously talks about, one that is suffocating in a lack of its own discourse, and that would be Super Metroid. <laughs> <laughs> Played Super I Metroid. hear that's the worst of the series, and that people really <laughs> like the, Metroid, Metroid Hunters or game. Fusion or something. I don't know what it is. Yeah, <laughs> certainly no one... That, that's right. No one would ever say that Super Metroid is in any way better than Federation Force or Other M. Um, we all know that it, it's absolutely bottom tier Metroid. Uh, but I got it into my head that, um, like a lot of other SNES games, I had never actually played it front to back by myself all the way through. Never happened. Uh, mostly because... Most of my time playing Super Metroid was spent hanging out with friends who were much better than I was at it, usually three or four of us, taking turns playing it and playing it in different chunks. And, you know, maybe I'd leave before it was over and then I'd miss some of the game and then next time we hung out, we'd play more of it or something like that. Um, one friend was really good in particular in like 1999 and could easily do a sub two hour time. So that really was like oh, well, we'll just hang out and watch him play it because he's really killer at it. 
Uh, and but but I had never actually just like sat down and actually finished playing it. And I realized a few things. Uh, first, I could play the first third of the game or so blindfolded because I've played that part of it so many times. And then things got really fuzzy right right around there as far as my memory went and which which let me enjoy some of the game's real highlights uh in the form of the crash ship which i vaguely remembered having a gimmick of the power being off and then you fight a boss and the power comes back brilliant super good uh got totally lost in meridia which some people say is worse than federation force and other m and uh in fact stops them from playing the rest of the game entirely which is a shame because it has this action-packed finale of shredding through columns in a space pirate archaeological ruin uh fighting the space dragon that killed ridley's parents being mistaken as an adoptive parent by the titular metroid who saves your life and gives you a super laser beam to end everything great game really fun uh certainly worth the time i i decided to actually put into it for a change and a fun one to finally play front to back i'm stuck on ridley not the first time obviously but the second time i've played on console like in recent history i played it all the way up to there and i've just died so many times that i just kind of stepped back i i have new respect for people who do low percent glitchless which, okay, you get Ridley to hang in one spot, and, you know, maybe this is on my mind also, because Games Done Quick also just had its thing, so I was like, oh, man, yeah, I've got to, I want to play these and not just watch awesome people play them. Um, but uh, for folks who actually play the boss fight legit without having an arsenal of a hundred missiles and dozens of super missiles and all of these high-powered things, I don't know how you do that exactly. Well, what you do is you try it 50 or 60 times and you give up. That, that, that's what you do. That's what I'm here to tell you right now. Sweet, sweet inevitable surrender. <laughs> you go back out into Zeebs and uh, find some more super missiles, my guy. You just, just build a bigger arsenal. And so is Returnal basically just third-person action uh, Metroid? Kind of. Uh, I, I did go back to Returnal 2 um, more successfully than previously. And then in, yeah, in you the beat third that second bio. boss. And the second boss is one of the highlight boss fights of the year, I think, so, for me so far. Um, definitely a, a difficult boss, but very readable. Um, and just a lot of fun design. The, the huge... Uh, shockwave walls that it puts out that you have to dodge only through so you have to have enough dodge to do it um when it flies through at supersonic speed that's fantastic um loads of things about it are good and then apropos of zelda you get a hook shot which the game teases the whole time right you're you see these anchors and things like that and platforms you can't go to in the first area and then throughout the second area and uh it's pretty clear that that's what you'll get as a reward for finishing this boss. And lo and behold, now I'm I'm zooping around at high speed. 
Does it feel like a good reward? And I'm asking this because, so I know that that's the reward for the second boss, right? So you work your way through a kind of like swamp biome, then you get into a desert biome. I think the desert biome is gorgeous and, uh, it's you know, one, it's lovely. <laughs> really nice sort of like minimalist aesthetic design, but kind of just perfect. Uh, and the thing about it is like, I knew that that's what I was going to get uh, from it, just from having read online, but it was a little spoiled for me because it's being a roguelike and there being a lot of procedural design incorporated and i think maybe sometimes i don't want to say sloppy like design for the arena rooms but maybe loose there's actually a lot of the places where you can grapple up to that you can get through to an, in another way on certain runs like you could actually just kind of like sometimes it's cheesing it but sometimes it's like oh like it feels like i should only be able to grapple up to this but actually if i just jump here here and here i can get to this thing that seems that has like a grapple point right next to it and so does it feel like it was still rewarding? Does it have a good feel to it? Is it like zippy? It does. Uh, well, for one thing, it's very zippy. It's it's uh, even for a game that is played at high speed, the grapple is even faster. Um, and it's not so much of a grappling hook where you swing on it as much as it is a that point over there, bring me there incredibly quickly and in a straight linear line, which is really fun if you're being overwhelmed in the middle of a fight and you have a dozen enemies suddenly tackling you and you've lost your combo and all of the abilities that come with having a good combo and you just you know spider-man your way straight out to another point um that and the third biome is pretty much designed so that instead of being able to move in between doorways like you do in the swamp or a sort of tent poles um that guide your path through the relatively semi-open desert um you need the grapple to get anywhere at all uh in in the third bit um from room to room you need it inside of rooms you need it uh so in the first two biomes it's kind of a bit of a reward but I do think it's actually intentional in Mark's part that you can break most of the points by popping up in the right way, like you said. Um, because those are zones that are designed so that the hookshot is extra. Yeah. And then in the third one, it's mandatory. Because <laughs> you have That's it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That makes total sense. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So long story short, Don's playing Metroid. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, still. Metroid and variations thereof, including Zelda. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, my confession, which I'll, you know, I'll get to more later, is that I've never really been a Zelda person. I've played Zeldas off and on, but I've always been a Metroid person. I was like the person that, like, I had Zelda and Metroid, you know, the cartridges for the NES, and I played them both a ton and beat them both a ton. But it was Metroid that was the real love for me, and Zelda was fine, you know. Um, you, you hate Mario too, or hate is a strong word. No, I love Mario. Really, you never. I thought you never got into Mario. No, I love Mario. No, no, Mario. I, Mario's my jam. I'm not like a you know fanatic or anything, but I think I've played most of the Marios that weren't uh, Galaxy at this point. Pretty much through, I think. Yeah. I don't um, like Mario because it's hard to know what to say about Mario. Like that's that the problem. Is true. Is, yeah, like when you're trying to think. Especially if you're like, you know, your shtick is that you have smart takes about stuff. 
Um, Mario is a really hard game to write about because it is. It's just really difficult. Right. This the set of platforms in this game are superior to the set of platforms yeah. in this previous Mario game. Yeah. I have strong Mario opinions to the point where <laughs> I get into arguments with my best friend about Mario games. So I don't I don't really know where you're coming from with this. But as like a well, where's the mute you... button for Don? <laughs> okay. I I think... I think you were thinking of Don earlier, Blake. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. That's probably it. Yeah, I, I just play all s- of them. <laughs> I just want to say that I think that Christian's given us the uh, the episode title, which is Zelda's fun. <laughs> I was waiting for the butt. <laughs> oh man, that's what you said just a couple minutes Zelda's ago. Fun. Zelda's, Zelda's fine. Zelda's fine. Full stop. That's it. That's the whole opinion. If you if you stop the podcast here, yeah. if you pause it, you'll have arrived at our collective opinion from for, for those who tuned in to hear Zelda. about Zelda. This describes none of our opinions. We Not talked even about mine. Metroid and Mario and agreed that Zelda's fine. Blake, <laughs> Blake, save us by talking about Pikmin 3 before we, you know, tie the proverbial knot around our necks. Yeah, I did play the original Pikmin 3. I was one of the 15 people that owned a Wii U. Um, thankfully, <laughs> I did not pay uh, U.S. currency for it. Uh, I traded a new Nintendo 3DS for a Wii U to some guy who was traveling a lot and didn't have time to like sit down to play. Um, but yeah, I splurged on the Deluxe because Target uh, had a base sale on it. And uh, yeah, it's it's the, the only single player really single player designed to be a single player rts on the markets um it scratches the uh itch i had from that still exists in me from playing starcraft 2 uh with all my free time in undergrad um but yeah uh pikmin 3 remains the uh, least good pikmin game in my eyes uh because the the new pikmin are so devastatingly broken to attempting to balance the game and they are not uh unlike the white and purple pikmin in pikmin 2 are not limited by uh throwing other types of pikmin into flowers to produce them um the enemy variety is not quite there as well as i never felt the the enemy encounters just outside of like the final boss are not uh that big a deal I think, whereas in Pikmin 2, they have these really devastating bosses where, you know, uh, unfortunately, it's really easy to save scum in that game because of how uh, the, the caverns worked. But uh, yeah, it, Pikmin 3 is still, it's still just fun to micromanage all these little things and solve puzzles using uh, cutesy flower people. Uh, that's why I wrote about uh, The Wild at Heart as well, uh, which I think did not uh was which i wrote like isn't quite pikmin but it didn't have to be and that's fine um it it was a it was a it was a great indie game i thought um but yeah uh i'm excited i finished the main story again and i'm starting the uh, extra content which the all all alamar side stories and then i have to uh uh train myself on these missions to be able to platinum everything because uh, when there are ranking systems and it's a game I thoroughly enjoy, I'm going to do what I can to uh, get the highest rank possible and prove I am a Pikmin master to myself. 
<laughs> Hopefully you'll get like an achievement note that pops up when you do it. Yeah, there are Nintendo put achievements in the game itself. They're they're called badges. There you go. But yeah. You take a screenshot and just, you know, print it out, maybe make a patch. <laughs> right, make my own certificate. They should <laughs> have hang it uh, on the wall. <laughs> a photo for that um Pokemon Snap printer that they just released. So yet it, they used to have, you know, Game Boy original had a beautiful printer, just a fantastic oh, yeah. like receipt tape style printer for a low bit art. <laughs> there, there and now they have a new on, one. I'm sorry. There was somebody <laughs> on Reddit, uh, I think it was like a couple months ago, who said they bought a used uh, Game Boy camera and uh, it printed out what was on there. And somebody had taken nudes with the Game Boy camera. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Like, this is this that's is sending nudes in the mid, one mid bit, 90s. One bit nudes. That's man. <laughs> that's a lot of imagination required. Yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good take, Don. <laughs> that's a, that's like, a good take on that. That's like the I know pornography when I see it. And this is right. a pornography. Right. That, that one. Uh, that one legal case, right? Yeah. yeah. Clarence um, Thomas looking at a, a Game Boy camera and thinking, exactly. well, there are a lot of squares here. And they yeah. could be obscene. The potential is here. And it's not much different than, uh, it's not much different than back when it was all cable TV. Uh, you know, you had the scrambled channels, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's oh, same God. Deal, really. That also required a lot of imagination. It's true. I don't know how we got from Pikmin to here, but let's move on. Uh, Pikmin and porn both start with the letter P. Yeah. Well, there we go. I mean, this is what happens when you get too many English Englishy type folks around. What? They just when you get too many Englishy type people together, they start talking about how to look at porn in the nineties. I don't. I haven't ever like had every that. conference I've been to. Yeah, pretty much, right? Um, yeah. What about MLB The Show Twenty One? And are you playing that on Xbox? Am I guessing right, Blake? Yes, you are guessing correctly. Via first. Game Pass and the, yes, the huge indeed. betrayal. I Right, I would have bought it if it had not come to Game Pass, okay. but I was elated when I saw that announcement. Yeah, uh, my last foray into baseball video games was I had a roommate who had a PS4, and I bought like MLB The Show 18 for 20 bucks and put like five hours into it, five solid hours, and then before that it was uh, MLB 2K13 for uh, for the PC, and that's that was the last one 2K made, but... Uh, what has really gotten me invested, and I, oh, this is disturbing, but I've played, I've put almost over 300 hours into it, and it came out in April. Whoa, um, is that that's uh, it's, it's ultimate team mode, which, you know, EA and 2K get, you know, shit all over by the internet gaming community for being microtransaction heavy uh, with Madden and FIFA for EA and then uh, NBA 2K uh, for 2K. But, um, there is a shockingly large amount of content and you can still have a god squad without spending a single cent in this game and they add more and more free offline content. I haven't played a minute online against other people because I don't have the uh, competitive fire I did back in my StarCraft 2 days. Um, I just want to relax and uh, sometimes just destroy the uh, computer and uh, I get a lot of I get a lot out of that. You know, sometimes I set it at an appropriate level where it's actually challenging, which it is. Um, but yeah, uh, there's 
just it's also a card collecting thing where it's like you know the the old players that they have the rights to they like just digitize one of their old cards put it in a series like second half heroes for the second half of the season a milestone they make their own cards uh like the milestone series like james paxton threw a no hitter here's this cool aesthetic thing that you can collect um you know and it's it appeals to the sports fan in me the collector in me and the uh the competitive uh side of me so it, it and it's also like the thing about uh sea ball hit ball and like it's always pitcher versus batter one of the biggest frustrations with contemporary sports games is that they're trying to go so realistic that the animations basically take up all the game movements uh, especially in madden or it's like the ai did something silly so here's a busted play or it's about figuring out weaknesses in the uh in the ai for like the defense or offense in madden and you know going ham on those deficiencies where you know mlb because of the sport it is just doesn't really quite have that issue um so yeah i'm obviously thoroughly enjoying myself um haven't spent a cent and still have a great set of cards like the last free set they released was for the all-star game like all the cards are like 96 to 99 overall so you can use these cards that everybody has the same access to you got to grind it out to get them and go have fun with them yeah that sounds fun actually i don't I didn't know if I could get into a baseball game because baseball, well, no sport is really my sport. And if there was one that was my sport, it'd be soccer. Uh, but, uh, you know, that actually sounds pretty delightful. I like the way they incorporate cards into it, too. That kind of like way of incorporating history yeah, into these presentist sports bait. You know, yeah, sports like uh, a lot of people will make theme teams around like, let's combine the contemporary stars of like the Philadelphia Phillies, like Bryce Harper uh, with the old Philadelphia Phillies stars like Cliff Lee and make the best all time Phillies team we can or something. I mean, uh, obviously some teams are more represented than others because the, the rights to former players uh, is really like on an individual basis where they have to like ask them or their estate individually so so that's really hard to balance but uh but yeah yeah i was gonna say there there is like probably one or two people or maybe a small team that that's all they did for like two years leading up to the release was just work on licensing and rights for this game um which i hope was somebody's dream job um, and not just a miserable <laughs> grind of its own kind. Um, oh my God. So uh, speaking of, I guess, sports games, uh, I have recently uh, been really digging into racing games for some reason. Um, I have no idea what sparked it, except I think that I had downloaded uh, Forza Horizon uh, 4 onto the Xbox um, just because it was on Game Pass. And you know, it had just been sitting on the hard drive there for a while. And I was like, I should play this. And I've dated it. I've also gotten sort of addicted to uh, getting points through the game pass through fulfilling certain quests. Because if you get enough points, you can get like these $10 gift cards, uh, which is enough to make me play certain games, to be honest. It's, it's um, like game, game Pass is the new Chuck E. Cheese, right? I know. Yeah. I, which is all I've ever wanted, you know? If I could actually just play games, in, you know, while 
immersed in a ball pit, uh, oh, you know, <laughs> with uh, some child's, you know, I don't know, vomit probably. Tickets raining from the sky. <laughs> yeah, and the exactly. uh, animatronic band in your closet, the closet. No, I've got that, actually. No, 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 no. With horrible but yeah, music. But, but a $10 gift card is worth much more than, like, 20 of those Chinese finger traps, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is so, it, though? I mean, to whom? To whom is the $10 gift card? I do wonder what $10 to, in today's gaming economy. Man, there was such a long time where I didn't have to worry about buying uh, new games at all because I didn't own any current gen consoles. And like, what is $10 really getting you? A banana. <laughs> to throw in, in Mario Kart. <laughs> ten dollars gets me little nightmares by the time i finally play it Mm, you know that's fair you know yeah um that's usually what i save those things up for but yeah so i I started playing forza horizon 4 and i found myself immediately just enthralled by it by the diversity of the races by just the feel of the cars by the variety of the cars uh it scratched an itch i didn't know i had and so I was like, is this just like a one-off thing? Is this game that good? In a certain sense, it is. Like Forza Horizon 4 is just a really good, you know, well-made game with lots of, you know, it does live service well in a way that's not obtrusive, but gives you new events and sort of encourages you to do them without being bossy, I guess. Um, but then I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play some old ones, right? So I, again... well, that can get you on the Xbox Game Store. That can get you a 360 game that happened to go on sale, which you can get for like $250 or something, which is, I think, what I got split second for, which is a great racing game where you're, you know, trapped in a reality television show and you're basically trying to blow up the other cars through, like, you know, pushing them into walls and stuff while also racing, um, which is also a blast. Uh, And so, yeah, I've just been in this kick of playing. I've I've playing all four forza horizons right now uh which you know there's one set in north in colorado one set in australia and one set in uh the uk and then one's like vaguely france and italy uh the mediterranean basically microsoft Uh, microsoft drive simulators since you can't fly a car to a different country they have to make more horizons until every everything's covered oh you give it like (laughs) i i mean i would be surprised if in 10 years like flight simulator and horizon weren't in some way like melded together um, yeah it certainly looked that way from the horizon 5 preview uh from their uh, e3 conference but i'll i'll stop interrupting people no 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 oh, no, no, no. Awesome, that's the whole man. point of podcasts <laughs> yeah is to all interrupt as much as possible and i'll talk at once but yeah so this is what i've, I've been playing these racing games and uh, I could, you know, list off like 10 different ones. And the thing, the reason why I can play these different ones were so many, uh, besides the fact that a bunch of them are on Game Pass, um, and so I'm not like buying most of them, to be honest, uh, is that they're perfect, like, you know, I'll say it, they're perfect parent games. They're perfect games where if you, if I have like literally 12 minutes, I can find two races that I can do, maybe even three. Right, I can jump from like to three different points in the UK and drive from one to the next, or I can be like, you know what, I've only got five minutes, which means I can't really drive around Forza Horizon, but I can do one, maybe two, if I'm driving while well, missions in split second, um, and it makes me happy. And it totally like the handling, especially for these games where the turns matter so much, uh, like Dirt Five is another great one, 
you can't mess those turns up, so you really have to be paying attention. You mess the turn up at all, you're going to end up like three or four places back if you have the difficulty set reasonably high, and that's it. That's the end of the race. You know, you have to keep racing, but that's the end, essentially. You're not getting any further. Um, so yeah, so that's what I've been doing, and then I've been playing Scarlet Nexus, um, which is a super, super anime, and I'm not a super anime person, but it's a super anime game, but the reason I got it is because it seemed like it had platinum-style action, uh, you know, like Bayonetta-style uh, action, or maybe Devil May Cry-style action, and it does, but in a very weird way that makes me think of, like, almost somewhere between Bayonetta and like Final Fantasy 15 or maybe Final Fantasy 7 remake if folks you know so like kind of summony like it's sort of revolving around combos between party characters uh but still like fast light and strong hits lots of action in the air uh sounds like lots a of... faster Xenoblade uh, yeah, too, yeah yeah there's definitely some of that you can cancel out of attacks into the other attacks right so it's got that fighter energy to it um and it's kind of batshit crazy story as is traditional I, for the genre yeah yeah i mean like somehow it strikes me as more crazy than most animes because it like seems to be condensing more would it's you also, say it isn't like one of your animes one of your japanese animes what do you mean Sorry. if that's a pun i've got nothing it, it, it was it was a poor reference joke continue so as you as you were yeah so this is this is what happens when you get somebody that's not very someone out like, there though who's listening to this i hope podcast, was very happy loved don's joke it wasn't the three of us but someone <laughs> out there don <laughs> loves your joke and i want I, you to know i refuse I to, to explain good. it i yeah that's it it's it's between me and that person <laughs> <laughs> you out there no i'm sure it's everybody but us um it probably, yeah, so, let's be real it probably is <laughs> so yeah so this is i've been playing this and it's you know scratching the itch for the platinum style combat when we all know that bayonetta 3 will probably come out whenever that switch pro finally does drop um or it'll become a steam deck exclusive when you know nintendo writes off uh the studio um i'm joking i think uh but yeah so that's what i've been playing you know nothing that i'm like super excited about mostly just things that are like scratching an itch yeah did you play astral chain i played the first two hours of it i think and then returned it like it didn't do anything for me and maybe it was because i had bad expectations that that's interesting, seeing as that is a very anime game. Um, yeah. Somewhere in between Psychopaths, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, and Evangelion. Uh, in fact, very directly a mixture of those three, um, which is made by Platinum. So it doesn't have Platinum-like combat. Yeah. It just has straight-up Platinum combat. Uh, and And I'm curious about why astral chain didn't quite click for you but scarlet nexus on the other hand is is working out if i were gonna say this the simple answer is the differences in the way the face buttons and joy cons or the face buttons and the analog sticks interact in the like way in which you have you know your buttons and face 
you know, and sticks that would normally be dedicated to a single figure split among two, right? So, like, with Astral Chain, you've always got, like, your... I forget what they're called. Um, your chained creatures, essentially. This is a game where you're playing a police officer that has a chained creature. Um, mm. so, oh, yeah. Which actually didn't bother me, even though it maybe should have. That part didn't bother me. It was just... The combat was, like... I was like... What'd you do, Platinum? You t- you took away my you know usual like combo style. And the thing is, I think that if I were to go back to it and give it four hours instead of two, I might come around. Because I think once you start maybe getting more of those creatures, because I don't think I had more than like two or something, if I remember correctly. I forget how it was set up. There is a point in Astral Chain where you're spinning out four to five of them, and you can even spin them out autonomously, uh, so you just can cause a great deal of chaos and multiple, multiple combos between all of your different... Let's let's go with JoJo's and call them stands. Why not? Uh, yeah, that, that's pretty close. Uh, and... Uh, it gets to be a real blast at that point and getting very high combos going um, and just constantly scoring hits on everything on the screen because you have a full squad that you're all kind of semi-controlling at the same time. Uh, it's a really good time. The The more time that goes between me playing Astral Chain um, and the present, the more I think I, I remember it more fondly, actually. Um, it has plenty of downsides to it, but ultimately, uh, it's probably one of my favorite Platinum games. I should go back to it. I mean, you know, the plus side of all of the many game delays that we have been seeing over the next, like, four to whatever, two four months to two years, I don't know, uh, is that I'm just like, okay, well, I'm going to go back to my backlog here. I think I'll play Black Flag again. I think, uh, you know, I'm going <laughs> to dig through a bunch of different things that I wasn't planning on playing because, you know, a bunch of things are just not going to come out. Uh, and it's going to be a while before another Platinum game comes out, to be honest. I think uh, Babylon Falls late 2022, maybe. Um, and that's looking maybe questionable these days. We'll see, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> um they made it a live service game they had to do it uh all right uh nate i am counting on you to get us uh into zelda territory oh i will i mean i want to talk about zelda Uh, that's what i'm really here for i want to talk about zelda can we talk about zelda (laughs) i mean (laughs) zelda it's you know it's fun i thought yeah zelda's fine it's fun it's good enough metroid's really no i can't even I can't even joke about that because Christian's so wrong. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) so um, I'm just too edgy for you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I I did finally um, sit down and play Celeste, which I guess by uh, Celeste. Speaking speaking of games with no discourse. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one has ever talked about this. It's a little known game. Strangely, uh, you know, Hidden I feel like two, two people played it on the Pico 8 and then it got like another release, but nobody played that one. Nobody really was. <laughs> I mean, I just hear Celeste will save your life. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. I like, I'm playing it because I need to keep my, uh, keep my indie cred 
and I hadn't played Celeste yet. I'm and deriving like, no pleasure from this. Don't worry. <laughs> you're not really an indie gamer if you haven't played Celeste. You mean you haven't listened to Neutral Milk Hotel? <laughs> <laughs> you, that really is what it is, though, yeah. right? It's saying it you is. haven't played Celeste is like, in the what over the sea? In the yeah. submarine? What do you mean? <laughs> King of carrot flowers um but the <laughs> i uh, i did finally I'm forwarding see... this to maddie thorson <laughs> i have her email and i'm just i'm gonna clip this part <laughs> um <laughs> but it is it's really it's really cool it's met my expectations it just because okay because i played super meat boy first i can't help thinking about super meat boy a lot um, while I play it, uh, although I am really interested in the mechanic that you can only climb for a little bit, I, I think that that's really cool. I also really appreciate that it very much has built into it. And I really, I, I've really thought as I played this game that it kind of helps explain its success to some degree. It really has difficulty layers built in. Where you can choose, and I'm a total casual, and I own that, and I love it, and it's my, I like to have fun when I'm doing fun things. And uh, so I really, really love Celeste because I can see, like, oh yeah, I could go try to get that strawberry, and I could spend 20 minutes dying, like, over and over again trying to get that strawberry because I'm not very good at, at video games. Um, but when there's generally an option to be like, maybe this time I won't get the strawberry, and maybe I'll come back to it. And I've really enjoyed that. I've enjoyed it's it's friendly. It's a it's a cool game that is really um, has met all of my expectations. And there's not really anything new to to say about it than that. But Christian asked me to write down what games I was playing right now, and that's what I'm playing. Um, but then I also uh, have been playing Lena's Inception by I think it's Bitten Studio with a with a Y. Um, and it is a phenomenal sort of uh, top-down kind of Game Boy style game. You can actually pick if you want it to be, I want to say, oh, I can't remember now if it's 16 or 32-bit or if it's 8 or 16, but you can pick and and there there's different uh, art styles for the whole entire game. And every time you boot up the game, you can pick which art style you want. Uh, and it's ready for you. And what happens is you are a teacher named Lena who's responsible for doing the tutorial that will tell the hero, Lance, who wears a pointy blue hat, <laughs> who will tell the hero, oh, Lance. Lance, how to survive in the world. And what happens is the world starts glitching around you in these various uh, ways. And then when you go in to do the tutorial for Lance, it glitches and this huge thing falls on his head and he dies immediately. And now you are sort of stuck. Rip Lance. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're stuck having to figure out how to 
finish the story in order to get the glitches to stop happening. So it's compelling in that regard because it's like intentionally tongue-in-cheek pointing at Zelda and being a Zelda-like that knows exactly what it is. You have an animal companion, which is really cool, comes with you and fights stuff. Um, mine is a bat that does devastating damage, but when you get to be low on health, it's a vampire bat and it attacks you. So you have to decide how you want to balance all that. But the thing that I find really, really fascinating about it is that the dungeons are procedurally generated. And that's the point to me where I start asking myself, have we reached an event horizon of Zelda-ness where you can tell a machine this is just <laughs> about what a Zelda dungeon, this is just about what a Link to the Past dungeon looks like. Make one. And that's my transition to talking about Zelda. Okay, I'm going to immediately pound the table about that. And a Link to the Past has some of the most complicated dungeons in the series. So you gotta you gotta tone it down to Zelda <laughs> 1 dungeons. Okay, I don't think so computers Zelda are smart enough Do you think not having... And I am i don't really feel the need to editorialize on that. Like, the dungeon quality of the... Or the level quality of the dungeons in Lena's Inception is fine. There are puzzles that are hard to solve. There are puzzles that are easy to solve. That are, there are enemies that you're expecting. There are enemies that you're not. Um, something else that is really fun is there are a bunch of different colors of potions and the game does not tell you what they do until you drink them. So you might get awarded with a potion and then it does something totally bonkers that you weren't prepared for. But okay, fine. So Zelda one, could you, could you teach a machine how to make a adequate Zelda one dungeon, which really is the question is what is the core of Zelda and is it something that you need humans to make? I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, but but to continue on that and think as well about items that don't reveal what they do until you use them, in Zelda 1 inspired procedurally generated dungeons, you have just described the most famous roguelike game in the world, the Binding of Isaac. <laughs> yes. yes. So can you create a procedurally generated Zelda 1 dungeon with all of these same qualities and have it be a, a widely celebrated game? I mean, yes. The the, the proof is there. Uh, people, people love that game. Many more people probably love that game uh, compared to Zelda 1. Yeah, but that's not my question, though. My question is, what's the thing that made Blake want to pound on the table? Like, where, where's that feeling because, come from? Oh, so Z A Link to the Past's dungeons are much more complicated than Zelda ones, for instance. And I think, I do not think computers are capable of thinking past uh, Zelda one level of dungeon complexity. I would actually shift it slightly, just like a little bit, which is like, I wonder if actually simplicity versus complexity is almost like, not beside the point, but not necessarily at issue. 
Like, what if part of what matters here is that it's not procedural? What if part of what matters, in fact, is that when Blake uh, and Nate and Dawn and I go and play Link to the Past, we are going through the same dungeons. And so when Blake's at one point and Nate's at one point and I'm at another point and one of us is ahead of the others, we can actually talk about it and be like, well, did you do this there? Did you do that there? Like, what if part of what makes Zelda is the fact that we've been talking about Zelda for 30 plus years, right? Right. And I mean, am I allowed to bring in talking about the overworld now at this point? Talk about the overworld. What is this overworld of which he's... The overworld is uh, sort of just like a large-scale dungeon in a sense, um, in the sense of the word, where you use items in it. You There are different ways to go about getting, you know, there are different things to do in the overworld. And Shigeru Miyamoto himself said for Zelda 1, they wanted to put in all these little secret caves with literally no indication as to where they are. You just have to bomb everything um, that people would find these secrets and then share them through word of mouth um in in such a way and that is certainly lost um partial or i should say partially lost uh in procedural generation you can still like screen cap your procedurally generated like outrageous room and then send it to all your friends and say hey guess what i'm screwed because this room you know looks like this and i mean to me that's a whole different thing um I think it's I think it's a lot more contemporarily uh, I guess with the times in the times we live where um, you know it's so easy to share information that's you know and you can just like look up a guide on like where everything is in Zelda if you wanted to um, but yeah and I think that's and going to what Don said about like the Binding of Isaac being more celebrated than Zelda One, I think that speaks to what in gaming has changed. Um, you know, Zelda One, you're so on your own in a sense that it's like you know somebody who grew up playing like you know Super Meat Boy when they were eight or uh you know minecraft when when they were eight is going to be lost in a lot of ways in zelda one whereas uh in something like binding of isaac especially because there are so many other roguelikes and roguelites out there that uh you know what the binding of isaac does is now something that a lot of people have an expectation for in games and I, I don't think that's like, that makes it any you know less good of a game. I, I personally love Zelda, but I could not get into Binding of Isaac despite having a friend who put like 200, 250 hours in it. Um, but yeah, I just think um, that there is a, a certain charm isn't the right word, but a certain element of, of fun, you know, which this. Fun is a buzzword, according to uh, a 4chan troll post. But, um, you know, there's something more fun to me about using uh, a tool that I got in one place that the designer put there for a reason, taking it and solving uh, a puzzle that a designer came up with, than having, like, four more keys than I need and uh, going to a room where I don't need keys, I need bombs, and nobody's dropped one because of procedural generations 
so I guess I just skipped that room. Um, but yeah, that's that's just how I personally see things. Yeah. No, I think there's something to that. I also think there's something to the fact that like, like I would say it's not that Legend of Zelda is no longer celebrated. It's that it's celebrated, but ne- not necessarily played by a lot of people, right? That's Legend of Zelda is the first Zelda I played. I played it, I want to say in 88, 89 uh, for the first time. And I played it a lot when I, you know, I remember just making that straight dash to the, you know, Northwest uh, waterfall and, you know, getting the bombs and just trying to, you know, do what I didn't know was called speed running because I don't think it was called speed running at the time. And my speed running was weak, you know, it was like a weak imitation. Um, and, you know, there was something sort of spectacular about it. And then by the time we're at where we are now, you have these figures like Miyamoto, Anuma, right? And there's something to that, right? Because those figures are celebrated. You also have this like narrative that, you know, turns Zelda into this, you know, almost like handcrafted production in a way that's actually really enjoyable and maybe is a little like, you know, fallacious in some ways, but at the same time, there's something to it, right? There's something about how we talk about it. There's something about like the continuity, um, you know, between Miyamoto and then Enuma. There's something about the fact that, you know, in the interviews with uh, the creative director for, you know, Breath of the Wild and uh, Skyward Sword, uh, Hidemaro uh, Fujibayashi, uh, you know, he talks about his, like, being inspired by Miyamoto. But not only that, but, like, you know, like, I learned from Miyamoto-san that I'm not to look at other games, but to look at adventures in the Japanese countryside. So he talks about, like, Nintendo, the, like, company, and the Zelda team in particular have, like, an outdoor wilderness club that they all go on. And so they're constantly going, like, you know, they're going, like repelling and things like that and that's like what they're doing on the weekends while they're working like, on breath of the like wild zelda, you know zelda and specifically the minish cap and the pikmin series for like miyamoto likes gardening so he came up with all these <laughs> games about that are in a sense about gardening or wandering around if you were tiny and the gardens were huge you know but that is that's the central thing though is the delight of finding things and the, and finding things that help you find other things, like I just when when we were thinking about word of mouth versus what came to mind my mind anyway is like the walkthrough, which I don't know if anybody really looks at the here's how to hundred percent Skyward Sword and then just step by step does every single I know I don't know that that's really a practice that I think that's more of a a straw man uh, sort of thing that exists but that doesn't make that document any less heartbreaking to me because it just I I love the Skyward Sword walkthrough no it just it takes all the (laughs) for me that is just the most joyless way to play a Zelda game is to just like don't go look for stuff. Don't tap on the walls. Don't mess with them. <laughs> like when when you the first time you notice in Ocarina of Time that and the other games around that era that the sword makes a different sound when it hits a wall that you can bomb. The first Which time you, you notice learn that from Agoron in the Fire Temple tells you that. Yes. Yeah. It's just like ah. But it's still, even though the Goron tells you, I, it's this nice moment. And it's a moment that I feel like you don't get from 
the walkthrough. I don't know. I'm a casual, but I'm anti-walkthrough. So, yeah. So let me harken back to my childhood here. I played uh, through. I played through every Zelda game until Breath of the Wild. Well, alongside my father, uh, we would take turns playing sections. Oh, I would play sections, so cool. and oh, really he cool. would and he would watch me. Uh, so he sort of knew what to do, um, and then I would coach him through getting through the same section. But until uh, I think it was until either wind waker or twilight princess he was adamant we had to buy the player's guide with the game <laughs> and then follow the player's guide to a t um because he has he has uh and i don't want to like act like a doctor here but he has some uh ocd tendencies mm. uh for sure um and that is one manifestation of them but uh but but yeah so i lived i lived what you're talking about and yeah eventually when i was old enough i did put my foot down and i'm like this would be so much more fun if i could just you know dick around right (laughs) and then you and then while i just screw around and figure everything out then when you when it's your turn you can go and do everything exactly by the book right (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, I've I've lived that. There is something. I mean, I absolutely agree. There's something nice about just figuring it out. Like, you know, I'm playing Skyward Sword right now, which I think is you know obviously not the most complex of Zelda's. Although I do find that it's dungeon. I'm just in the first dungeon right now. Uh, I do find it charming in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, if there's something really pleasant about figuring out how to use the slingshot and be like, okay, I'm going to like open things up that way. Uh, and the kind of like looping back and forth that you do in the dungeons. Um, but you know, I, you know, I think I spent like two minutes, maybe five minutes in front of a door with an eye sealing it, uh, you know, waving my, my Wii control or my like uh joy con in different directions and didn't quite get it right and i was like you know what i have roughly one hour to play a video game today and i may not have any time for two more days after that i'm looking this up and i was like oh clockwise okay (laughs) (laughs) you know and then you know i can figure out the rest but there's like there's these moments where it's just like you know the thing about playing a Zelda game is it does teach you how to play it, but some of the Zelda games seem to me to rely on knowledge from previous Zelda games. And I also think there is a difference between the 3D and the 2D entries. And I feel a little more comfortable, I would say, with the 2D entries. And then when I get to the 3D ones, with the exception of Breath of the Wild, which I just you know dumped a bunch of hours in on a playthrough, uh, I'm a little out of my water, right? Because I played Ocarina of Time the way that Don played uh, Super Metroid, which is to say I played a bunch of parts of it. And, you know, the same way I played Final Fantasy VII when it first came out. Like, I mm-hmm. played an hour at the beginning and then two hours in the middle and just depend who was the most, you know, stoned at any given time, at least stoned, I should say, you know, would probably have the controller in their hands at a given moment. And, uh, yeah, so there's definitely moments of, like, and, I, you know, I bring this up because I actually want to say that, like, it's not just a pleasure or the charm. So there's charm, right? There's charm, which I think is an aesthetic value that is really important, right? Like a set of styles that have cuteness to it. Not always too much cuteness, you know, as you see with the blowback against something like Wind Waker. Um, but cuteness is important, I think. Uh, 
but then there's also the pleasure of finding things the explorer you know the exploration that's key to it but then there's like the pleasure of figuring things out of like solving puzzles and i i, I think that's another crucial part of zelda from what i can tell and i think you know i'm curious how people feel about breath of the wild if we have anybody here that I, I think there are some folks that were really into Zelda before Breath of the Wild that it just didn't do anything for them, whereas that was a game that brought me back to Zelda um, in a way that I didn't expect to be, and in part because I think the way in which it introduces puzzles is so different from a lot of the other Zeldas, although not maybe too different from the first one. Yeah, like I totally agree with that. I think there was a lot of hearkening back to uh leaning into the open worldedness of the first Zelda game um and I think I, and I guess this answers my question of what makes a Zelda game a Zelda game is um an open world I think I would define Zelda as an open world game it's just a very focused one where you have particular uh side quests you can do and it's like in Zelda 1 and um a link to the past and then breath of the wild uh well mostly a link to the past you can do the dungeons in almost any order um because of how the game is designed and i think there there's a sense of freedom in that that other zeldas lack uh i think at ocarina of time you can also do the spirit temple pretty early on um compared to the others um when usually people do that last but anyway um yeah and i think i think what breath of the wild did was really lean into an open world game and gave you um not just like pieces of heart and all this but it's like i mean in a way it's a lot i th i think it's more like other zelda games than people give it credit for because i mean most of what you do in the uh non-dungeon areas in zelda are find pieces of heart and do side quests and that's basically what uh the shrines serve as de facto pieces of heart but then you can also choose to upgrade your stamina instead um and it's like, do I want to live longer or do I want to explore more? And it asks you to make that choice all the time, whereas past Zelda games did not ask you to make that choice. It was always like, yes, I want pieces of hearts for more health slash completionism. And it's always... And I guess the thing about Breath of the Wild is that you have all of the tools you're going to get right from the start. You can just march right to Ganon's castle and kill him if you want. Um... Which is something you couldn't even do in Zelda 1, where you had to go to the first eight dungeons, get all the Triforce shards before some old man would even let you into the final dungeon. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I think Nintendo saw how popular the, uh, the open world genre was starting to get, and it's like, okay, let's just lean into that uh, much more than past Zelda games have. There's an interesting idea there. So for if Zelda were to be like defined as open world from beginning to end, then you'd have to have an open world game that could also be linear, like utterly linear. And then like what seems to be important there is a sense of openness, even if it's not necessarily open all the time, like a sense of like a horizon that you're always like have a certain kind of freedom in relation to. And I wonder about that. Yeah, I mean, 
the thing that makes Zelda always, especially the 3D Zeldas, seem more open to me is when you first step out on a Hyrule field and it does all those crazy camera shots where it's like, if this was real life, they'd be in a helicopter zooming over Hyrule field. And it's like, that that's the sense it wants to give you, give you is like, okay, it's like taking you from those two-dimensional open worlds of uh, Zelda 1, Zelda 2, and A Link to the Past, and and giving you the same idea, that it's like, this is an entire sandbox for you to just run around in. Of course, like, the, the open world of Ocarina of Time has not aged uh, extremely well, where it's like, when you're when you're, chi- when you're young Link, there's just, like, pea hats everywhere, and then the, ske- the skeletons that pop up at night are, like, the only entertaining things between, like, you know, all of the cities in Lon Lon Ranch and Lake Hylia. Um, but, you know, in Breath of the Wild, they put so much more in in the space for you to look at, even though, like, some of it, like, gets samey, like, you know, how many more goblin camps or Boko Bling camps can I take down uh, while I search for the next shrine, you know? Um but yeah, that, that's that's what I think of Breath of the Wild. I, I still consider it a Zelda Zelda game and not like something different. I just think that it's more an accentuation of a particular thing. And I think, I want to say they started exploring that with uh, Wind Waker, except there is literally nothing but water everywhere. <laughs> that is one way to, to have a much larger area is just cover everything in water. I have a question. And it involves breaking Zelda more <laughs> and seeing if, if we can uh, approach this in, in that way. So it seems to me that, uh, yes, in talking about particular directors, but also in talking about the handcrafted stability and uh, directedness of Zelda games, that there is a question about intention around them compared to what you get in in procedurally generated systems even procedurally generated systems that are heavily authored as many roguelites and roguelikes are but there's there's that kind of authorship and heavy hand and then there's the more wild frontiers of uh fan randomizers mods and remakes and things that instead of when you're playing link to the past or ocarina of time and you do a little bit of sequence breaking and maybe go to the spirit temple first, you know, but you're still inside of the system and, you know, broadly not playing around with a lot of glitches. Uh, where that exists, there are also things like the beautiful thing, uh, which I've just recently been pointed to, SMZ3, which can be found at samus.link. Uh, that is the website. SMZ3 is a Super Metroid and a Link to the Past crossover randomizer. Nice. The way it works goes like this. The goal is to kill both Ganon and Mother Brain and then finish either game. Uh, And there are discrete portals at four different locations inside of both Super Metroid and a Link to the Past as they've been stitched together um such that you go back and forward between them finding items from both games in either game such that you 
maybe can complete both games together at the same time. Uh, the four crosspoint portals are always at a stable location. They're either um, in Zelda at the like Helio Fortune Teller, the back of the old man cave, the Dark World Ice Rod, Misery Mire Shed. <laughs> Uh, and in Metroid, uh, they're in map rooms and, and various missile or energy refill rooms that are, are waypoints around the map. It is probably the case that if I was to attempt an SMZ3 run, or however many it would require, that I would have to do some advanced strats to compensate for however it is that the game stitches things together and puts items out of order because it wouldn't have those beautiful moments of yeah oh i found this item just here where the authors put it and that helps me solve this puzzle just over there and it's so satisfying it's the lock in the keyhole and it's meant to go together and you can feel the craftsmanship and everything clicks so wonderfully and smz3 goes yeah the tool's fun and the settings are fun and the game's fun we've all played them a hundred times and what if we just broke everything but you could still play it that's super great that is yeah, so don't, great don't those randomizers always have like uh aren't the algorithms written such that you can always complete the game i know the like link to the past randomizer is that is part of writing a good randomizer in the same thing as uh the currently very popular um i think it's final fantasy 4 uh the four jobs fiesta mod that people play with it where you randomize what jobs your characters are assigned in a game where the job system dominates absolutely everything <laughs> about the game uh but the true art like you just said of you know, pointed out of writing a good randomizer is that you manipulate the random generation just enough so that it's random with certain constraints. It's it's giving a different seed to the random number generator and the ways that things are combined together. So it could well be that you take these really authored tools. And yes, they're still meant for certain keyholes, but because the order that you find them in is all out of whack, that you have to use alternative tools or use those tools in slightly different ways. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, the whole approach that you might have to the game is some bizarre mixture of what you already knew about it and expected to do with maybe some things, depending on the difficulty of the randomizer, that only speedrunners regularly practice um you know in super metroid there are plenty of movements that samus has access to that uh there are no indications outside of observing things in the game that would tell you that samus is actually able to do them you don't pick up an item in order to be able to do uh this uh, wall jump for example yeah. but you might well, get shoved down a pit jump. And then you see some creature do wall jumps and they do it with the right timing and rhythm and angle that if you do what the creature did, Samus can wall jump. And it turns out you can wall jump all over the game whenever you want from the very start. Uh, but you won't know that unless, yes, you've read a guide or seen someone else play it. Uh, or you get to a certain spot and you see a creature do it or you do it by accident. Um, I, I just think there's so much more room that that shows for how you can discover things in these games, which is wonderful. 
I, I think that in a way that's what this kind of hacking or randomization illustrates is that even if you take a lot of the authorship out of Zelda and Metroid, there's still enough to discover and there's enough lasting coherence, whether or not you try and really preserve it inside of the game world by seeding RNG or not, that you wind up with a really good time. Although, on a on an authorship level... I threw is... the authorship bomb in the room and I'm very happy. Yeah, you did. You did it. Um... Roland Bart. Uh, the <laughs> uh, um, Can we talk about semiotics? Really about what about the semiotics of Zelda? That sounds really gross. Um, the one of my favorite uh, Zelda games, maybe even the one I've played the most. Uh, is the Master Quest edition of Ocarina of Time when Nintendo did that to themselves. Obviously, it wasn't a randomizer, but they basically said, okay, so you think you know Ocarina of Time. You've played these dungeons enough times to pretty much know where everything is. We're going to go through and we're going to give you these same tools that you're used to getting. But we're going to force you to use them in ways that you haven't thought about before. In many cases, in ways that specifically worked against the grain of what your expectations would have been uh, in the the room that you were in. And I thought, I still think that is so delightful. To me, it was like, if I could rewatch my favorite movie, but something different happened. Like it just, it, it gave, it gave the whole game back to me in this new, you know, and then I, I three heart, you know, challenged it. And then I, you know, only Goron sword or no Goron sword or no shield or like I did all the other little variations you can do. And I think it's true. There is something really to be said in my opinion, actually for the closedness that forces you to figure out how to work with what you have. Um, which I do not mean, by the way, as a complaint about Breath of the Wild. I just mean if we're talking about Zelda in general, I think that it's actually this careful interplay, this tension between making you feel like Hyrule Field is this wide open space where you can run around and do anything, but actually the fun is in figuring out what you're able to do, for me anyway, what you're able to do within the limitations that, that the game has provided for you. Yeah. I, yeah I, and and something, sorry, uh, sorry, Christian. Something I mentioned really quickly about the, the master quest is that uh, the, the dungeons maintain like all the rooms are still where they were. It's just that things in the rooms have been totally changed and you might visit different rooms in a different order. So uh, you still have a sense of cognitive mapping uh, within the dungeons if you have played it before, but like uh nate said uh you will have to think about certain puzzles uh completely differently uh and you your use of items will change as well and there's one part specifically the fish level you're inside jabu jabu the fish and it's all cows 
Like they were like, oh, we yeah. have cow assets. We're going to replace any ever, all the things that were the other types of puzzle in this dungeon. We're going to do it with cows this time. <laughs> yeah, you shoot a cow with the slingshot to open a door. Yes. Yeah. That moment when Nintendo and Blizzard were on the same page. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there is no cow. All cow levels. Um, <clears throat> yes. Yeah, sorry, Christian. You've been trying to talk. Yeah. For like, no. 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 I. I no, I think this is interesting because I think part of what we're getting at is so there's a kind of interesting tension between openness and closure. And of course, there has to be a certain amount of closure. Otherwise, you can't have a puzzle, right? Puzzles require a constraint. Otherwise, they just have pure freedom, right? Um, in which case, there's actually no challenge, right? So there has to be some kind of constraint. But bringing it back to, you know, what Don was saying, but, you know, sort of interesting about those examples is, of course, they're, they all face the same kind of challenge as every kind of sort of critique of a given canon through parody or through some kind of pastiche, which is that they're utterly parasitic upon it, right? And like, in fact, all they do, not all they do, that would be a bad way of putting it. One of the things that they inevitably do is actually uphold the authority of names like Miyamoto and stuff, because that's why you they went there in the first place. It's like the you know, there's a number of iterations of Shakespeare's The Tempest, right? Including famously M.A. Césaire's Martinican uh, anti-colonial uh, text, A Tempest. Uh, and, you know, you read it, and I have my students read those side by side when I teach intro to lit classes. And the thing about it is, of course, like, they're like, oh, yeah, Shakespeare, really good. Uh, and this is good, too, but Shakespeare. Uh, and so there's a certain sense which, you know, that almost is inevitable, which doesn't, like, change what's happening on the margins but one of the things i think is curious or one of the things that's interesting is that it does bring up the question of what the draw is because i don't think there's anything intrinsic like in zelda that made it have to have the appeal it does it was well positioned it does what it does really well uh miyamoto was in the right place at the right time and i think brought things to it that somebody else might have brought to it right and i think you know there's interesting discussions that could be had about internal competition in nintendo and the different sub studios in nintendo that we could talk about and the kind of like weird randomness of that we don't need to get into uh but part of it is like an accumulation of history has made zelda what it is and you know two of the things that you know folks said they wanted to talk about that we haven't really got to but i think is worth talking about are the characters, right? Like these characters like Impa that have repeated for 30 years in various ways. Uh, and sometimes these characters repeat, but only retroactively. They did. They weren't that character until another game made them that character. And then it turns out they've always been that character. Uh, you know, that good old future anterior. Um, what will have been. Uh, the retrospective then, prospective. Exactly. <laughs> um, but then there's also the timelines, right? These like... I, but right before we started, just to kind of refresh my memory on some of this, I watched like a, a seven minute video on Zelda timelines, <laughs> you know, which I honestly, you know, give me Derrida any day of the Pod week. Over. In the YouTube <laughs> and podcast industry about I Zelda honestly, timelines. I can do a Heidegger, I can do Derrida. <laughs> Yeah, Don, based on your uh, nonverbals there, I think we agree on the timeline. Uh, I, that I, It's this really just hack-and-eyed thing that, like, you, they did it. They just, they did something that makes a modicum of sense so they could put it in a, in a book and literally canonize it for the fans. 
even in when there was no intention of like tying them together in any sort of satisfactory way until we hit uh wind waker i think uh things started to like be like okay now we're gonna start like establishing a history like a history of hyrule because i mean that's how the game starts it's like you know here are these tablets that speak of a hero that'll do this thing and you know and we had to drown hyrule to uh seal away again and um but yeah i i hate the idea of a of a timeline trying to like bind uh, these sort of loosey goosey things together. It's it's just really messy. I I wonder where the cartoon show, which had uh, <laughs> now famously a great deal of license, it had so. It turns out, and this is it's a wonderful thing to read about. Um, they could get away with so much as writers and directors for that show, and those poor animators would have to take these ludicrous notes. And it's part of why the show is so wild is the the writers Excuse would genuinely me. be able to be like, hey, just, you know, then he floats horizontally across the room and turns <laughs> into a cube and, you know, folds in on himself and then turns into Link again or something, you know, and then he's a goldfish. What You know, just totally Paper surreal, Zelda, dude. beautiful stuff. And, uh... I, I don't know if that's been included in the official history. I don't know. I was, looking, I was looking at the CDI games on Wikipedia, and it explicitly lists the CD, Philip CDI games as non-canon. Yeah. I think they include, so from my understanding, the Capcom games, the Capcom developed games like Oracles, uh, Minish Cap, those all count. Those do those are all canon, but anything else that was outsourced does not count from like the official Nintendo perspective. This this though is and speaking to characters is part of why I think Link's Awakening is a great entry. Because there is no way that you can say where Link's Awakening is inside of the Zelda canon. Deliberately so. Right. It There's, could be any, any any of the links could have had links, that dream anytime anywhere in the genre any place and is it supposed to be after link, link to, the to the past technically yeah. like that's supposedly. where they want it to be it's supposed to be but it doesn't matter the link's awakening can be wherever it wants and i, I love I, the windfish i just I windfish the... is great the windfish is goofy. It's a whale, which isn't even a fish, and it's <laughs> and it's it's trapped in an egg. What? But it's like so a excellent. Also, so for great. the record, the Switch remake is cool. I I, I like the Switch remake too. Yeah, I, I kind of was like, oh, okay, remake, but I, I really liked it. I, yeah, I it was can't compelling. Bring myself to pay sixty dollars for a game I've already played. And that's something I want to rant about is the Skyward Sword port. Okay, well, uh, that's, yes, that's poo-poo. Yeah. That's absolute right. garbage. I'm not going to defend yeah. the the price point of Nintendo <laughs> right. games or what they I'm do sorry. with their Disney-style vault. Yeah. Skyward Sword is a game where you fight the same boss fight five times. Dude, Girahim is a, is an awesome boss. Not gonna lie, he's one of the he's one of the no, best Zelda the characters, hands down. Prisoned the stupid thing. Oh, with the, the oh my gosh! Right, you fight Sorry. that toe. You cut that thing's toenails 
five different i'm sure it's five times also if have any of you played hyrule warriors <laughs> yeah i've played hyrule warriors. The, oh my god the imprison is by a mile the worst boss in it's hyrule awful. warriors it's, too. yes no oh it's a god. disaster in that too and no i'm i see what skyward sword was trying to do which was let's give you the exploration that we gave you in wind waker let's let you fly instead of sail and then let's also give you the ground so that you feel like you're doing a kind of Twilight Princess kind of thing. And then right, let's also do the thing with the sword that we all led you to believe we were going to do in Twilight dude. Princess and weren't quite able right. to swing. When the Wii first came out, this is what everybody thought it was going to be. Yes, and then but I remember. At least, okay, at least Nintendo back then was generous enough. Pay 10 extra dollars and we'll give you a whole new Wii, con- Wii mote right. with the Zelda goal with the... Tri- um, uh, Hyrule and Crest. I've still got it. mine, it, and it's yeah, and it's got the <laughs> and it came with the like a soundtrack sample. Yeah, too. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like so the sky is like it's always like that's what Zelda is is like openness and then a bunch of enclosed spaces. Mm. But like the in Skyward Sword, it's like there is a, the sky and then a closed space and then a closed space within a closed space. Yeah. And it's just like layered differently. I'm not minding that, you know, and like hearing, um, you know, the directors talk about that and the producer talk about it, like, you know, they were going for that, like, what would happen if we merged the overworld and the dungeons more seamlessly? And, you know, it kind of works. What I mind is that it tries to be so narrative. And Mm. I have to say that I think Zelda, for me, is at its best when the story is at an absolute minimum and the characters are pretty much paper thin. Right, like in more like variables in an equation than they are. I feel like Link's Awakening people. gives you just enough. <laughs> yeah, just enough, and it makes no sense, which really helps. Yeah, like it's dude. like yeah, you have these characters. There's this old man. He's a shut-in, but you can talk to him on the telephone. Why does the island have a telephone <laughs> network? It doesn't. Where did matter. these Mario enemies come from? The crocodile. Why are there like They're pets. It's like, a, it's like a ripoff of Earthbound, right? Where Ness's dad is literally yep. the phone. <laughs> Except yeah. you meet, it, except it would be like that, but then you meet Ness's dad, and he's too nervous <laughs> to talk to you in person, which is even better than being an absent dad. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, like the, yeah, like you, Link's Awakening, you and your girlfriend, Marin, gotta save, you know, this magic, this magic whale, right? I mean, that's, that's awesome. That's, that's, it's little enough story as it as it takes and i think that's part of uh ocarina of times like enduring legacy is that the the characters have enough personality to be charming but don't talk enough that it's like there's so many gaps for you to fill in using your own like uh headcanon or imagination that the characters are really cool i mean the fact that you like date a fish woman and, or get married to a fish woman and that Agoron is your sworn brother and then you know you have your childhood friend who's a kokiri who never grows up and then and then you know Naburu is just a throw in and uh, and they <laughs> needed somebody to be the shadow uh, guardian so Impa why not <laughs> because apparently the Sheikah just slaughtered millions uh, you know thousands of people according to Shadow Temple lore, but you totally know. cool don't think about it too hard. Right. It's Zelda. It's fun. This is the strength of their narrative, though, right? Is that, like, minimalism in which, like, probably, ideally, each character 
could be summed up in three sentences or four sentences, right? Blake just and, gave us and, the rundown, the complete yeah. summary of Ocarina of Time. And that's that's part of why it's so great is because it, it enables the player to fill in those gaps. And that's why Link remains voiceless. It's and suggestive think- and not exhaustive. Right. And like and and that also, just to be clear, I think is also the source of certain weaknesses and certainly is one of the reasons why the series has been able to sideline Zelda, the you know, character Zelda, like consistently is because they are functions. Right. And this is an equation. And yes, you can produce a different thing, but it's also very easy to just tweak some of the variables and focus on the mechanics rather than the narrative, because if you were to make a super narrative driven like a. A Telltale Zelda game would be so miserable. Um, well, because it would essentially be the Zelda cartoon. Uh, you know, like it would just be miserable. As and long so, as every time Link talks, excuse me, princess is an option. Yes. I think it would get straight tens <laughs> yes. from every publication. It'd be a 45 minute run for all five episodes or whatever. <laughs> Silver Bullet to a 100% Metacritic score right there. Could I make an argument, though, for the sort of side? And I don't I don't mean marginal in the way that we often in, in academic circles talk about marginal, but like the marginal characters, maybe the minor characters. Like I was just thinking about, Christian, your question from a while back about to what degree is it basically nostalgia is what I feel like you were saying. Nostalgia and the, the market that makes Zelda the thing that Zelda... Um, and I, but I think something that really sets the games apart for me anyway, are that there's always something very wacky going on. And in, in a game that very much kind of wraps itself, at least in the 3D ones, in a kind of sword and sorcery seriousness to, to one degree or another. Um, but I'm thinking about... Uh, Tingle. Tingle is my favorite. Tingle is is the god of of Zelda, and I would die for Tingle. Um, there's the person in Majora's Mask, which is a game that I don't even have time to start talking about because it's so good, and it's maybe even the best one. And I'm just gonna leave that take there. Majora's Mask has the person who lives in the toilet. Um, the hand, yeah. Yeah, in the, in the inn. Um, then, uh, not Skyward Sword, um, Twilight Princess has the balloon guy who operates the balloon cannon <laughs> and has the that whole duck thing going on. Like, and, and there are just so many delightful side characters, minor characters in the Zelda games that keep they keep giving you this overarching narrative of that's just like high fantasy like you're the hero and you're gonna go rescue the princess and the princess gets varying levels of uh agency and power and lack thereof in ways that have already been analyzed pretty consistently but i love these people on the sidelines there's just this totally bananas if you watch the credits at the end of majora's mask when they show like every character from the whole entire game all together in one space it's like oh my god this is a wacky parade we're looking at here yeah that's part of what brought me to write about majora's mask uh for the longest 
longest or was it shortest day longest night topic where it's like you know you have to accept part part of the anxiety of the game is accepting you cannot get everything done in the three-day period and it's it's like you know some of these virtual characters are gonna have their lives like destroyed and then you know and then everything starts over and they and they're none the wiser but um but yeah like like you said, I wanted to bring up Majora's Mask, and then you went ahead and did it, Nate. Uh, but, like, yeah, I think the minor character stories are so well done in that game because Nintendo's like, okay, you have two years to make a Zelda game uh, that we can shove onto the N64 before we come out with the GameCube. Um and that's what they came up with. So I feel like maybe they should time crunch themselves some more uh, when they make Zelda games <laughs> if they produce things like that. You hear to hear first, folks. Defensive crunch. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. I, hey, I've written some of my best papers under uh, self-made crunch. crunch. So, yeah. Can I just say, because I like the recurring theme of... Um, n- expecting games to tell me what to do and not looking things up and how badly that goes. Um, I think last time I talked about not knowing that you could fast travel in um, Elder Scrolls games for a long time. My thing in that vein for the Zelda (laughs) podcast. The look on your face, Blake. (laughs) I I would throw the controller across the room if I had to walk across Skyrim. My first experience of Elder Scrolls Oblivion was very meditative. (laughs) But I guess guess what it comes down to, Nate essentially is the first person to truly beat the Elder Scrolls uh, 4 Oblivion (laughs) because he has come to a full appreciation of the world of of oblivion yes i have in a way that nobody else was able to <laughs> simply because he did not know uh fast travel was yes thing. our next episode is going to be about nate's uh completely walking based playthrough of gta 5 <laughs> yeah, in which he somehow him. never <laughs> actually got into a car <laughs> i do We'll get to that. We'll get to that. No, but what happened was so meditative. because I don't look things up, and because I am also not very. It's it, the problem is that I'm also not good at games. Like that's the problem. I miss clues. You like every variation of Ocarina of Time Master Quest ever, and you're not. Very well, no, good. because because the thing is, I I don't Master Master Quest is a special. That's my game. That's my thing. Where I'm like, I know this. This is this is where where I thrive. But generally speaking, I tend to miss clues. I'm good at puzzles, but I, I I'm don't pay attention to stuff. And so what happened was I played through all of Majora's Mask and never figured out the bank. Oh my god. <laughs> and so the things every, you miss, if they wouldn't be so good if they weren't so essential every time. to the architecture and experience of the game. You you miss the things like it isn't like you miss some side thing you're like Oh, I miss talking to this random side character. I never knew they existed. Character number 207. And everyone's like, oh, well, that's an easy one. No, you missed the bank. I missed the bank. I missed the way because the game resets every on this three-day cycle and you lose everything every time. And so every time I needed money for anything, I would have to go find big, beefy monsters and spend half of the first day fighting them. So that I would have money. Okay, to... did you at least know about the the slowing times? I learned that from the scarecrow. 
I learned that from the scarecrow. I'm not. I'm sure there's someone on YouTube who can prove me wrong. I I don't know that an average person could beat that game without ever figuring out that song, but the the slowing time down thing. But no, I I did learn that. Although I only learned that after doing the swamp. I didn't figure that out until after the swamp. But that's not was... too bad. That's only like the first like one fifth of the game. Yeah, it's not so but... bad of a Zelda game that is relatively short in terms of its main quest. Yeah, uh, when, yeah. when compared to others. Yeah. But figuring <clears throat> figuring that game out without the bank was a real experience. I won't. Yeah, like how can you one hundred percent the game without the bank? Like the all night mask costs the max rupees five hundred. Like, did you just grind oh, all three no, days? I didn't, uh, no, I just didn't 100% the game. I beat as much of the game as I could, because there were parts of the game where I was just like, well, that's clearly impossible. How would you ever get that much money? Deep, deep Majora's Mash discussion here. Okay, we're going to zoom out, guys. Hypothetically. We're going to zoom out. <laughs> what I like about this discussion, though, is it brought the different levels of wackiness together that I think Nate was trying to bring out, which is there's the wackiness of the story element, but there's also the wackiness of like the weird little puzzle things that you just have to kind of stumble upon. And if you don't stumble upon it, you might still be able to work around it, but you're going to have to do, you know, some jumping through hoops uh, of fire in order to do so. And, you know, earlier, I think Nate, you thought I was talking about nostalgia. And I do think that nostalgia is part of why people love Zelda. And there's, you know, nostalgia is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, nostalgia can be useful. Um, but I actually think it's more like the accretion of history, right? Like it's the way in which like boomerangs are a thing, right? Boomerangs are a thing that go from one game to the next and have specific functions. And maybe they're not in one game, but they're going to come back in another. Or the way you can expect this character to function as a vendor from one game to the next or things like that. And one of the things I really like, um, and I know Don's, you know, written a little bit sort of in this arena, um, with his piece on Zelda as an archaeologist. Uh, but one of the things I like about uh, more recent Zelda games in particular, maybe at least from Wind Waker on, uh, is that they seem to be thinking about that. They seem to be thinking about the accretion of history, the accumulation of history, and the ways, way it weighs on things. Um, I don't think Breath of the Wild has a compelling story at all. And I always think that, you know, when folks try to like defend Breath of the Wild against people that are critical of it because it doesn't have any story, that there's no reason to defend it for that, right? It doesn't really have much of a story. Uh, but there, it has a world that itself is storied in a really interesting way that has to do with the way in which different time periods have superimposed upon another. And that's just strange. And yet people just live with it. Um, and that's great, you know, like yeah. that's what I love about it. I, I love that about the smaller characters in Breath of the Wild. I love that sense, uh, that they're just living in, in this world, which like you said, has all of this history superimposed on top of it. Um, I really love Cass. I think Cass is a fantastic accordion playing uh bird who i mean just yeah just but you know he cast also has this amazing capacity to relay folklore to the player and to link which is about link he is talking about he's 
saying, oh, these stories from 100 years old, they say this thing happened, and then this hero comes along, and he does this thing, and, then, and that's your puzzle clue, right? You're like, oh, well, he says that Link did this thing, so I'm going to you know, shoot this arrow through the fifth rock on the left when the sun rises and the chest will appear. And that's, thanks, Cass. Thanks, buddy. Uh, and meanwhile, Cass continues to go around the world despite meeting Link dozens of times and having the exact things that he's describing happen in front of him. He continues to go around the world going, this is just folklore. I'm playing my accordion. It's like, wait, it's like Harry Dean Stanton as Apostle Paul in The Last Temptation of Christ, who meets Jesus, who meets Willem Dafoe's Jesus at the end, and he, who tells him, like, no, you're making all that up. I, and I didn't rise from the dead. And Harry Dean Stanton's yes, like, Harry Dean Stanton. I'm giving them the Christ that they need. I... That is flawless. I Harry Dean Stanton plays some of my absolute favorite characters across his career. And now that I know that there's that tenuous Harry Dean Stanton cast connection, it makes me like cast even more. <laughs> yes. Yes, as it should. As it should. This is the kind of conversation that you can only get from the Gamers of Glasses <laughs> <laughs> Which is maybe not a good thing. But no we're gonna go with it. Comparing Paul, <laughs> a truly, truly postmodern podcast where we merge the highbrow with the quote-unquote oh, lowbrow. Breath of the Wilds and Scorsese. I think that yeah. we are winners. Well, I was gonna bring up Pierre Pasolini's, you know, last. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not produced film that he left a screenplay, which was, you know, Jesus in the contemporary period visiting New York. But I won't go there. <laughs> I'm sure Cass is in that oh. one. Too, Cass yes, is no, totally. <laughs> no, that one's got Kaipura Gaibora. You, you, you know who Link is analogous to if we're going to go through film references? Has anybody seen Being There with Peter Sellers? Oh, I don't think so. Watch that. Go, go watch that. He does walk on water at the end, nice. uh, but it's very much like somebody who ends up on a quest who's kind of befuddled the entire time. That's the thing. It's like, you know, Link seems kind of dumb, right? Link's yeah. not a smart kid. He's just kind of stumbling through shit, and he just barely manages. That's why. That's why from Link to the Past on, he needs. He need, or I guess, sorry, Link's Awakening on. He needs some sort of companion to tell him what to do. Yeah. And he just sort of goes along with it. He's like, uh, okay. I feel like Link is a Tarkovsky character because he walks forever and there's no dialogue. <laughs> is that why I like Zelda games so much? There are actually Tarkovsky games. So is Zelda the first walking simulator? <laughs> if if oh Nate God. plays it and he misses the <laughs> horse, <laughs> then yeah, and the glider. I right. played Wind Waker and I never found the boat. That was a really tiny game. Well, without the glider, yeah, right. Without the glider, you're stuck on the plateau. How do you get? They, they, it is, it is attempt to beat the game continues to jump off the great plateau and tries to live. That certainly far. adds some challenge to the game. You can't jump. That I thought far it was a one-time use item. You glide <laughs> off the plateau and then you walk around. I rule the rest. I never found another glider, you guys. <laughs> all right so let's close by recommending folks some non-zelda zelda e zelda like 
games. Um, Don, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, I I type. We have the shared document behind this podcast, as as all good podcasts must, uh, especially if they're driven by academics. Um, and I typed in a few different games. I, I, you know, I was wrestling with choices, and then I went, "Oh wait, no, this is really obvious. It's Hyper Light Drifter." Which then left me with having to scratch my head for a choice because Hyperlife Drifter is right where I went to, too. Uh, go I, ahead, I have no idea why. I was just like, oh, why are these other games crossing my mind when this is right here? Uh, and I think the reason being is you have this game that's set up and the whole overworld is itself a series of puzzles and there's no way to negotiate in and out of what may or may not be dungeons, the borders of everything are pretty fuzzy because it's one continuous space um, without going through dozens and dozens of puzzles. Um, and, and a lot of them are fairly obscure. Many of them can only be triggered by some other far-flung piece of the map. Uh, and binding it all together is this beautifully fluid difficult combat um which is just gorgeously rendered in this neon pixel art style and this deliberately haunting soundtrack uh and it it really is just you know it it might be a little bit on the you know too much style and not quite enough substance side but it's it's just a beautiful game to play um in in just whatever dimension you want to to consider um and for all of those things and those commonalities with puzzle and overworld and going from place to place and unlocking things as you go and being able to freely explore which direction and which dungeon and bosses you prefer to pursue from the very beginning uh hyperlight drifter has that in spades and uh well it may be a popular choice um certainly a very well-known independent game i can't help but recommend it oh it's a, it's a great game especially when you get the dash timing down the rhythm of the combat um which is one of the high points of the game is uh playing some of the bosses um the boss in the in the high mountain area is maybe the standout for this um they're almost designed to force dash rhythm uh, in in the amount of you know particles and enemies that they spew at you. And because they are engineered to do that, you get into da this dash rhythm, and it is fantastic. Um, it isn't quite rhythm game. It isn't as directed <clears throat> as all of that. But it's there in, in the way that the gameplay and the enemies and the combat is structured. And you just flow right into it. Um, and when it clicks, which isn't always, it is immensely satisfying. Definitely. Blake, what have you got for us? Yeah, so I hope uh, my three... <laughs> Um, Zelda-like games didn't take anyone else's away, but uh, Okami, uh, or Okami HD, it's been remastered, um, is probably the singular most, uh, most Zelda-like non-Zelda I've played. Um, you know, you're, you're a wolf with a little uh, bug companion instead of a human with a fairy or a robot or an imp. 
Um, and basically, yeah, it's there's a big overworld. There are a bunch of dungeons, and as you uh, travel through your adventures, you get uh, access to additional tools that help you solve puzzles, which are created by um, if you if you play on the Switch, uh, it has motion controls where you like to to create a bomb. You uh, activate your you activate your uh, your paintbrush, and then you paint the bomb where you want to drop the bomb and there you have it but you have to uh, get to the point in the game where you have access to the bomb first but it's really similar in that instance uh i don't think the puzzle solving is quite on the same level as zelda and the dungeons um are very linear um but i think it still does its does a great job uh and it has its own sense of uh like the the art style is absolutely gorgeous it has its own sense of what it wants to be um it doesn't want to be like a zelda game it wants to like sort of do its own thing but it's like let's let's they sort of take the tools from zelda and just repurpose them uh to match the game and what they wanted to do um and then i also had um blossom tales the sleeping king which is like uh if everything so it's it's a isometric view it's a 2d uh zelda imitator if uh everything in the link to the past is like turned up to 11 i want to say blossom tales is at like a uh seven uh seven out of 11 on the scale it's less good at uh, being a Zelda game, I found two of the four dungeons to be kind of a slog, but the other two were very enjoyable. And the overworld is very reminiscent of Link to Link to the Past. There's a lot to discover and do, um, like pieces of heart and all that stuff are are basically in the game. Um, so if you want another 2D Zelda that's like uh, Link to the Past or Link Between Worlds, uh, Blossom Tales. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Nate, Okay, give us a Zelda like. So here's the thing. I struggle to think of Zelda likes because I don't play them very much because I play Zelda all the time. Um, but <laughs> I'm too good I, for Zelda likes. I'm too Zelda. good. I play the real <laughs> Zelda. And I don't look at the walkthrough and I don't buy the manuals and I don't find the bank. <laughs> I... <laughs> I did want to make sure that I gave Lena's Inception uh, justice, though. Um, I Because I, I feel like it's not quite fair, even though it's obviously an uh, interesting point to talk about it. It's not quite fair to just be like, this is the game that does... It's Zelda-like that has procedurally generated dungeons. I, I think there is more to it than that, and I think it's a really cool and um fun take that kind of intentionally tongue-in-cheek is playing with your expectations about what a zelda like is it's not the first or only indie game to use the the game is glitching and that's the thing that you need to like that's the enemy it's not the first game to ever do that but it does do it in like a fun and compelling way uh the main character is a teacher and carries herself like a teacher throughout the rest of the game and isn't silent the way that Link is silent. There are randomly um, anthropomorphic bears, just like half of the NPCs are bears 
who interact with you just like the way the humans do, except they say a lot of bear puns when they talk to you. It's a really fun and neat game. And if I'm remembering correctly, even though this was a while ago, we're still very much living in uh, playing through all of the richness of that itch.io bundle for racial justice and equality. Um, and I believe Lena's Inception is in that, actually. So if, if you have that, you could pick it up and play it uh, for, for a little while. It's, it's a cool thing. And then the one other thing I briefly wanted to highlight is one of the ways that Zelda, especially 3D Zelda, makes its way into my life a lot is in uh, designing puzzles and traps for tabletop RPGs. Um, it is hard to do a fun and compelling TTRPG puzzle that's not just like a boring escape room where we're not actually <laughs> there, an escape room with nothing physical to interact with. And Zelda doesn't really do the chance operations the same way that a TTRPG does, but still, I I take a lot of inspiration when I'm crafting dungeons from the dynamics of Zelda puzzles and how there's all it's it's actually quite rarely just like shoot an arrow into the fifth rock at the left there's often this little um the this a few different ways you could look at it to figure it out and so that's a fun way that that Zelda makes its way into my other gaming life that's great uh so I'll close this out with a very short game uh minute m i n i t uh which is very much uh kind of link's awakening uh sort of feeling uh zelda like uh it's a one bit uh rpg in which you only have one minute uh gameplay sessions and so each minute you need to accomplish a certain task to solve a puzzle and you have to be able to do it in a way where you'll be able to get back to where you were to complete the next step the next increment in whatever puzzle you're working on and it's very you know, it, it's a game you can beat in a few hours, to be honest, um, your first time playing it. And so it's not a very long game, but there's something about that sort of compartmentalization and there's just sheer, like, kind of utter tightness of being able to make this game where it's just a minute long session each time and uh, saves each session. So it's also really just good to play between things. And uh, yeah, nice little kind of very minimalist spare aesthetics. And I love it. That's our Zelda cast, folks. Uh, don't ask us for any more Zelda ever. Zelda is fine. It's fun, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know. No one has strong feelings about it. Yes. No. None. When Metroid Dread comes out, we'll we'll do our uh, Metroid podcast, maybe, officially. Yeah. Um, I'll infect it with Zelda. Perfect. Exactly. exactly. I'm, playing, in... I'm playing that thing that you talked about, Don. Yeah. I am going to that website and playing it. Nate, you're not allowed to Dominic. play it unless you write on it. I um, Well, I mean, that's just the rule. I only play, like, two video games a month, so I have to write about whatever I play. <laughs> you guys don't know it, but the reason Nate produces so much in the site is I've actually locked them in the basement of my house. That's why you can hear his voice in the background. Every once in a recording. while on the podcast, I'm th- you hear the sound of me thumping a a mop handle. Uh, how else would Nate have sufficient time and energy to so generously edit one of these podcasts <laughs> if he were not under those circumstances? <laughs>